And so we might say this is an experience of the void. You're listening to the Digital Void Podcast, where we work to make sense of the borderlands of digital media, culture, politics, and memes. My name is Josh Chapdelaine, and my co-host is memeticist Dr. Jamie Cohen. Today, author of Reality Squared on reality TV and left politics, Tom Cyberson explores how reality television shapes our social and political lives and explains how we can confront today's postmodern condition. Before we begin, you can follow us on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform now. So Tom, thank you so much for being here. You just wrote Reality Squared on reality TV and left politics. And this book is fantastic. And it's not even a joke. Like this is near and dear to my heart and this show and our progress and the research I've been doing for years. And I'm so glad you wrote this, Tom. So thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thank you. Thank you uh, so much for having me. It's it's really, really great to be here speaking with you today. And I'm also glad you enjoyed the book. I um, didn't know how it was going to be received, honestly, when I was, when I was writing it. Well, then that, that brings me to the first question. What drove you to write it? Yeah, for sure. So I had been kind of like thinking about reality TV and evangelizing for it and writing about it for a couple of years after I got out of law school, actually. And it was just a growing interest of mine. But I had just been, I had grown fascinated by reality television. I mean, going back to maybe when I was in high school, like the early 2000s, uh, I was aware of it. It was starting to become you know a big part of the culture, but I didn't really begin to get addicted to reality TV until probably late college. And I would say that it was, um, it was Rock of Love with Brett Michaels. That was like my first like true addiction <laughs> to reality TV. And then also the kind of the sequels like Daisy of Love and stuff like that. And then, I mean, I think probably for a lot of people, uh, Jersey Shore was like a big turning point. Like it really upped the game in terms of what we come to expect in terms of quality and cultural impact. On, uh, show, on reality TV shows, at least for me. And so from there, um, my obsession just kind of grew. And in parallel, I was also uh, losing interest in the legal work I was doing and getting a lot more interested in film theory, psychoanalysis, political economy, uh, all of those things. And so this project had been kind of um, bubbling around uh, in my head for a while, um, but I'd only done kind of like assorted articles and blog posts and stuff like that. And I always eventually wanted to put it all together. And I spent a couple of years writing a novel as well that went nowhere, uh, to be honest. Uh, and so after I decided to kind of shelve that, uh, at least for the time being, I said, like, reality TV is something I truly adore and I, I want to write about. So let me see if I could kind of like put together my my book on reality TV after thinking about it for several years. So well, for a work of passion, it is incredibly dense with a lot of good theory and also validates, I think, a lot of what people have been like thinking for a really long time. And my, my favorite part of this entire thing is it validates postmodernism in its current context. And I think that to me is like one of the most important aspects of this text, which is that we, we've been living in a postmodern world, but, and reality TV is a reflection of it. But really your work is like, yes, this is, this is the connection we have to draw from these, these aspects. So we woven throughout is this, uh, is the idea that reality TV as a television genre is a reflection of the reality of our reality. It's hard, it's hard to like say with all these, the word reality television being a genre and 
knowing if it's constructed reality inside of a reality of an objective reality with also the idea of non-objective reality is kind of like using that word in its own definition. But it's uh, in and of itself is like kind of neat to see how you parsed uh, these pieces out, out and like kind of like teased these very specific analyses from the text and these and text being the, the shows to reflect how the theory was working with it. So that that must have been really like, how did you did you rewatch all of these series that were are mentioned in the book from like The Hills to Real Housewives? Or did you? Yeah, so it, it was a mix. But before I talk about the, the shows, which I definitely want to talk about, I just wanted to comment on kind of what you were saying just now about that kind of all these like levels of reality that we're dealing with now. That's kind of um, where I got the book title from. I think I actually came up with this before I encountered this in, in Frederick Jameson's work. But Jameson's like definition of dialectical thinking is like it's thought about thinking is like as you're thinking about something, you need to think about the thought that's taking place. And it's a similar thing um, going on with reality TV is that it's this like it, it's this constructed thing that has like the look and feel of reality. And you almost like it's like so immediately like, I don't know, just like understandable uh, to us as viewers, which I think is, by the way, why it's so like addicting and why it's so watchable. It's so easy to watch because it's like absolutely familiar. But it says something about the process that's going on outside of it on, you know, the the higher level of reality about the about what reality means to us, how we form it. It's a specifically social process. You know, things that count as reality change over time uh, and they they change from person to person. So reality TV, it's like the narrative art form of our time because it says something about how our reality is constructed right now. So that was kind of the thesis of the book that I wanted to explore. And then as I got into these specific shows, you know, it was kind of a mix. Vanderpump Rules and Real Housewives were like a bit another big, big step for me. Like one, once I discovered Vanderpump Rules and the Real Housewives universe, like I it was like fun falling off of a cliff, you know. I was completely immersed in these shows for years for law school, especially Vanderpump Rules. It was around season three. It was when season three was on that I really started getting into it. And I began thinking and writing about it with respect to morality and the way that morality um, plays a role in different types of fiction, whether it's, you know, transgressive fiction or whether it's like the moralizing kind of like uh, mainstream movies that that we see today. And I've been a Bachelor fan for a while as well. I, I kind of like like reluctantly still tune in, uh, usually from season to season. And The Hills, I actually did write that chapter while I was watching it. I had never, I did not watch The Hills when it was first on. I watched the first season of Laguna Beach like a couple of years ago, all in one day um, once. Uh, and I'm actually rewatching it now, and it's, it's just such it is such a delight to revisit. But yeah, I, I did write The Hills chapter, which I thought was actually one of the weirdest chapters in the book, while I was watching the show. And it just completely just wowed me in how different it is from other reality shows because it's actually like the the constructedness or the stagedness that is like a big part of what they're doing there and that was kind of the problematic that I tried to explore in the in the chapter um as you saw but like for for listeners it's called the hills did not take place and it's a reference to work from uh Baudrillard on the Gulf War, where he kind of made this like incredible uh, postmodern claim that the Gulf War was not actually taking place while it was happening. And so that was The Hills. And I found, I found it to be such a fascinating experience to kind of watch it and also dig into what was going on in terms of the, the question of desire and romantic reality and what counts as a relationship as I was watching it. Yeah, this, it's funny you mentioned that that's like the, the straight, I love, that's my favorite chapter is the, uh, the Hills Did Not Exist. So to give you some, some background, I was, I left 
private sector after working on a reality show. I was a TV producer long ago and that broke my brain. And I was, I was like, oh my gosh. So I actually wanted to go study that. And funny enough, my study in my master's was postmodernism. And I graduated in 2010. And when I graduated, it was just such a funny moment because they were like, well, congrats on this degree, but it's useless. And I was like, and I was like, well, you know, maybe I was like, but you guys maybe aren't like zooming out far enough and recognizing that like we're in it, you know, like we're actually in this. And I remember when Trump became elected, I was like, well, like glad my degree is going to start working out now, you know, like that's, it is actually important to study postmodernism. So that, that chapter, the Hills did not exist is like, my favorite of all of them. When I was working on a reality show, I was working on a really very small scale, very low budget. And by lo- it's funny when I say low budget, I mean low single digit millions um, in comparison to like what the hills were, which is unbelievably expensive. And I can remember getting on a plane once I was leaving New York to go to California for a shoot and the Laguna Beach producers got on the plane and they immediately just they didn't care. They weren't carrying bags. They were just wearing suits and they got in first class. And there was me carrying like nine bags and six cameras and like carrying everything to coach to jam it in the overheads and it was just clear like there's a cast system in mtv and it was like really funny to see that from from the back end of like they put a lot of resources into these constructed reality shows and the reality shows that were more like documentary non-fiction it's all fake but it's like all that like the second tier ones are like oh good luck out there good luck on your shoot and (laughs) And it was and it, what I really liked about the chapter. So your, your argument in that one, and, and to correct me if I'm wrong, obviously, since you're the, the author here, is like Baudrillard's work, where he he basically said that he wasn't saying that there, the Gulf, well, depending on how you read it, but he wasn't specifically saying the Gulf War didn't happen, but he was saying it didn't exist because it's mediated, that we only see it through the translational process of a mediated reality. And the Hills, and I, just talking about it, I can remember that last episode, like the Hills is such a construction of reality that like you mentioned these very specific moments in the later seasons where they the producers pushed a little too hard to create a functioning reality. And if you compare those two, it's not like comparing the Gulf War to the Hills, but it is saying that like the meat, the idea of interpreting reality through that screen is not up to you. It's up to what well, I think you say, is, uh, let me, let me get this words right. The, the distortion, the levels of distortion of reality and the relationships and the level of interpretation. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, it was, that, that chapter was a lot of fun to write and it was kind of the one that I found most challenging for me to figure out what I wanted to say because kind of at, at, as I like introduce at the, at the beginning of that chapter, I mean, this is the show that pushed it to its limits. You know, this complicated artifice of reality television, they really tra- pushed it as far as it could go. And it, in fact, yeah, like you, you mentioned that, um, that famous conclusion to the show. So for uh, anyone listening who hasn't seen it, they actually have a, a shot of one of the characters staring off into the distance and from behind him, they roll away a fake set and pull back and there's all sorts of cameras all over the place. And it's just this like, it was this like very daring gesture um, at the end, which kind of challenged viewers, I think, to say like, what did you just see? Like, what do you, what happened here? And so like, like, did it take place? What is the nature of the relationship between uh, these characters? Like when one of them says like, oh, you know, I was really just kind of faking the relationship for the show. It's, you know, still a fact that like, well, you spent a whole lot of time with this this person and like you probably got to know them pretty well from, you know, all of these different productions you've done. And it kind of just mirrors the um, the difficulty of, yeah, like you were saying, kind of defining what it means for the these mass media spectacles to happen. 
happen and whether we actually have the ability to know them because they're so remote, they're so mediated, you know, they're, they're remote, not even, not, not only in terms of like physical distance, but in terms of the, the types of communication, the narratives that are overlaid on top of the images that we see. It's all incredibly non-obvious. I, I would put it that way. And one, one of my big motivations in writing the book was like, I was a little bit sick of hearing as a response. Like when I would tell people like, oh, one of my main interests is reality TV is, you know, um, I'm sure, you know, you've heard this before. Everyone who watches reality TV has heard this. I'm like, oh, why do you watch that stuff? It is so staged. It is so fake. And I wanted to kind of like put my thoughts down about like, what do you mean when you say that something is staged or fake? Like, what, what does it mean to say something happened or not? Where is the event that you're referring to? And how is that different than our real lives, our so-called, you know, real lives of getting up, going to work, having a persona on the internet? having a persona in front of your coworkers, your family, all of these different appearances or instances of ourselves are just kind of like scattered across all of these, all of these kind of like mini events or, or mini examples. Uh, and so it was, it was something that I, I wanted to kind of at least point out how non-obvious the answer to the question is of like, did the hills take place? Was there any authentic romance uh, on the show? And what is so kind of like, what is so compelling about watching it? I mean, that's that's one of the things about Laguna Beach and the, and the Hills. It is just, they're gorgeous shows. They just like completely pull you in as well as any, um, any you know, so-called fiction show. Oh, yeah. I remember like when we were building our, our show, we were, it was at the time of Laguna Beach. It was like really the aesthetics of narrative storytelling were really, really important for us. But we hadn't, it also came down to like, when I was talking about that cast system, like we did, we had DVX 100 shooting mini DV and they were shooting on cinema cameras. And it was amazing to think like reality TV is that. One of my very good friends uh, from college is now, is still, I think he just still does stuff, but he was the camera operator for Jersey Shore for Wow and Snooki's camera. So he was a specific camera op for uh, just the duo. And looking at his rig, I think his rig was like 60 or 70 pounds. And as I know, from reality production and he knows you're up when they're up so if the contestant or person is up like that's your t you're on you know like they, you sleep when they sleep and then you don't even get to sleep because you're then looking through your footage and planning your next day and when you look through that quality and then i i turn on like wandavision it's like the same cameras <laughs> i'm like well that's that's quite spectacular like that is that's a kind of amazing to see that like the tech necessary to tell these beautiful stories is what you said before. Like it is, it really is reality TV is like the narrative art of our time. And I think that one of the things I want to return to what you just mentioned is that that specific moment in um, your chapter, it's like when people stop being polite and start getting hyper real, which again, you're titling on these chapters. Fantastic. <laughs> um, when you, when you say this very specific quote, you say here, these interactions on a daily basis, they take place over a number of digital platforms. And within each platform, overlapping social permutations form subsets of threads and groupings. Each context requires its own highly specific set of relations and unspoken social expectations, such that I'm a particular me in each varying context. And I love that because I think that that solves your problem of like people saying, oh, well, you know, it's fake, it's candy, it's like whatever. It's like, but do you understand like how hard it is? Like, it's not just hard for the, the contestants and the characters and the talent on screen. But like the people telling the story and the people watching it are all 
participating in that specific performance. It's much more complicated and leveling than what I think a show where you're just kind of a passive experience to like something that's like the MCU. You're, you have to actually participate in reality TV to make reality real. And I kind of really like that that mediation, that mediated personality has this thing. And I, I would love to talk to you about this. Like it's context plus social expectations. Like that's, I, that not, I don't think enough people think of that. Like, so how do you, how do we, how do we word that right for people who are, is this, a, is this leading to a better television literacy or media literacy of that? Like people watch it differently or will that change reality TV by us watching it differently? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, but yeah, th- this was one of the, I think this is one of the central questions I had in, the book, you know, it relates a lot to the question of identity in kind of the the postmodern space about how um, how kind of decentered or fragmented identity has become. Um, it's very difficult to nail it down. You know, going, going back to Frederick Jameson's work, he, he was a big influence on me in, in writing a lot of this stuff. You go back to the period of um, kind of modernism or earlier forms of capitalism, it was a bit more stable. Like uh, people uh, had the ability to say, like, this is what I am. Um, and they had a kind of a clear sense of their spot in the social kind of order. And now things are just not like that. Like you're, you're a million uh, different things depending on, uh, on the context. And one, one of the quotes that I, I've always kind of found very, very helpful, it comes from uh, Slavo Žižek um, on his, uh, one of his books about pop culture. I think he's talking about um, Hitchcock. He's saying that like the, the biggest deception you could have is to say that you are not what you are pretending to be. In fact, you are exactly what you are pretending to be in as far as society is concerned. You now, you know, when I was a lawyer, you know, I felt, you know, I definitely felt like I was pretending. I got up, I put on a, a suit, I put on a tie. I went, I sat at my desk, I did legal research and filed, you know, uh, motions and stuff like that. And I was pretending the whole time. And it's like, well, guess what? You are a lawyer, whether you like it or not. Um, it doesn't, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter the way you're feeling inside. And I think there's a, um, actually a, a quote about this that Mark Fisher refers to in Batman Begins, where there's a, a similar quote where it's kind of like, you know, what I do matters, not, not, not what's inside or, or something like that. It is this thing where what you're pretending to be, the face that you're choosing to show at the time, that is you. Um, and it's being constructed by, uh, people that are outside of you, you know, subjects that are outside of you, according to symbols uh, that you didn't necessarily come up with and don't have control over. You may think may think that you have a good a good handle on kind of the the symbols that you're playing with or the aesthetics that you're playing with and forming your personality, but they can go awry very quickly because they are kind of, as I'm sure you've studied a whole lot in semiotics, you know, these things have a mind of their own. Yeah. And you're right. This this is something that we talk about on this show a lot. We have on many people that we talk about pushing back against the idea of digital dualism, that we exist separate identities in those spaces and rather say that we are the same person, but we present or perform based on those technologies. It is, it is us. It's just the technologies develop an outcome for that that type of one. And I think you brought this up for a second. I think there was a moment when you talked about a kind of a symptom of this, like you brought up uh, JT Loire and uh, James Fry of James Fry, the symptomatic of a culture enamored by a creative reality. Like, I think that that's such a great, that's, that's America, but it's also such a, that's bled into like the export of American culture to, to elsewhere is like creative reality. And then it, what you just said is like, it's, it, it's a mix of both the transfiction on like fiction as reality, but also the public's extreme sense of betrayal on learning the truth. That was cool. Like that was basically what you just said, which is like, if you find out that there's not you 
playing that part, like then it actually becomes like bigger problem than like the acceptance of like, yeah, sure, you are playing that part. It's almost like you don't, you almost want them to pull, you want them to go full send. You want, if they're going to, if they're going to play the part, you, you gotta, you gotta stick it. You, you know, you can't, you can't come back from that. So I wanted to ask you, of course, about the uh, politics that come from this, because I think you bring this up towards the, the front of the book. And of course, you can't avoid the subject of what, what Trump is and how he is. And I, I made this joke. I, I probably, this, uh, if we were to go back to the archives of this, I probably made this joke multiple times, but I always felt like reality TV in its structure and, and how it presents the common person as the performance and how the audience then takes that performance as real is mediated both by the screen, but also the producer who tells the story. And in that way, kind of drives us to the fact that it could be, in my opinion, I thought it was more of a like a an easier construct of fascism than would be social media, if we were to use social media as like that inhibitor of like, how do we get into the dark place? And then when Trump like was in The Apprentice and Mark Burnett invented his new character, I really like think that Trump, uh, here's, here's your quote, which I think is awesome. He's both the lowest form of celebrity and the highest political office on the planet. Awesome. Like no one has put that as succinctly in, in any of my my readings because he plays that position of like he's now both that Burnett himself, like in his expertise of how to tell reality television stories, has told the story of Donald Trump. And now Donald Trump had to live that story beyond the screen, but he didn't leave the screen. And I think that's where I think many people who have the last several years have lost that sense that what we were watching was political theater, but really reality television political theater. Yeah, it was kind of, I mean, in, in some ways it was like, just kind of like the the insidious perfection of the ru- the ruse that, you know, American politics has been for like a really long time. Like, I, like I mentioned this too, like, I mean, how much of the Obama administration was like, you know, just, you know, uh, just kind of a fan- fantasy image of the perfect liberal figure and, uh, uh, and George Bush, like he, you know, he pretended to have a Southern accent, and uh, and and also, you know, going back to the Bush Bush administration and the Iraq War, like um, I think as as Jody Dean kind of pointed out, like they were the, they were really the original postmodernists here because they basically just said, like, look, we're not going to worry about this thing you're calling facts. We're going to do something, and the facts will come, will come after. And Carl, you know, Carl Rove being like really the um, the original uh, villain of that style of politics. Um, and you know, what what's disturbing is that it was just like, it was extremely effective. I mean, you know, Bush was in office to administrations and they successfully wrecked the world with their agenda. And so it's, um, you know, it's disturbing. And then it's it's disturbing, but it's something we need to like take like a really hard look at. That was something else I was trying to do in, in the book is like mainly the book is about reality TV. And I, I really try to um, describe it as kind of a celebration of reality TV. And it's just for people who enjoy that genre and want to think about it more. Some, some of these, these broader questions. I, I had to bookend the book with those because that's the moment we're in, but I don't claim to have, you know, kind of worked out the ultimate solutions here. I mean, I have, I have some thoughts. It needs to be looked at very very carefully and very um, kind of like uncynically and kind of without maybe assumptions that, you know, whether you're on the left or the right, you're probably dealing with assumptions that are like a century old or several centuries old right now. And, uh, and they're not going to be, they're not going to be useful right now. So it's like, how do we deal with this where like, what seems like the worst thing in the world, which is this like total disorientation of social reality, this like totally post-truth context, 
how do we square that with the fact that it seems to be kind of like one of the most effective ways of doing politics or, you know, maybe like the, the only necessary way of dealing with politics and capitalism itself. Like I had that Adam Tooze quote from his big, uh, huge um, doorstopper on the financial crisis, which is like, look, that what happened, what went down in the financial crisis and all of its implications. I mean, how do we even talk about economic reality anymore? So it's um it's a tough spot to be in, but I think it's like it's these sorts of kind of conversations that we have to have if we're gonna make any progress, right? you know, uncomfortable as as though they may be. One hundred percent, yeah. I think this is. I think it does make people uncomfortable, though. It is that sort of going all the way back to like we started with, which is like that the criticism of like why do we watch this? I, I find a lot of beauty in reality television. I don't I don't have cable anymore, so I don't watch it as much as I could. I, I'm just like more on the on demand type of thing. But like when I watch reality TV, I because of my experience of working on one, I have to kind of separate myself from its background because now I see through it. But when I watch it, I'm always thinking about the people, like the actual humans, the 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 people that kind of make up the characters and how they become characters and how we create like some sort of like fanness to that. Like how do we actually enjoy a human as like our where we have a fan of them? And I I throughout my and throughout your experience through mine, you probably hear people like whenever you say talk about reality TV, somebody's gonna tell you not only their favorite show, but like their favorite character on it. And like who they they align with or who it is. And that could be very polarizing. You know, like that could be like somebody who doesn't like always stick out. And I think it reveals a lot about people who they are when they they identify with certain characters as well. And what's amazing about that is like, that's, that's kind of like the, the lens to look through reality TV with rather than like seeing it as a whole is like seeing how these constitutive elements make up those things. I also think it's like important to check it in the terms of what you just said about like capitalism Post 2008, we probably do live in a post-capitalism world. We just haven't, it hasn't finished yet, you know? So the structure of reality TV being entertainment, but also taking what would be considered potentially banal subject matter and like making it characterized is kind of good. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's kind of like interesting to see that because it, it does still play in this, this space that isn't social media where you're not compensated for your work. You know, you're not like, there's no reward other than like probably anger. Whereas reality TV, it's kind of like television and television as a genre, like is a reference to an older genre that is not even a hundred years old yet, but it definitely represents the current moment. And that I think that's really important for us to just analyze and like think about because it does allow us to recognize reality TV as a, as an important part of the television, television, just television as, as a thing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I kind of, um, I like what you were saying about kind of people loving characters on uh, on reality television. I mean, kind of going going back to the question of Trump and, and some of this stuff, something I hear a lot is like someone like uh, Bethany Frankel or Lisa Vanderpump. A lot of people will, will say like, oh, like they are like such a shitty person, but they make great TV. I love watching them, but I really think they're like terrible. Um, and so like there's this, you know, this like contradiction that I think like all people should be comfortable with uh, looking at, even, you know, in literary characters, there's, you know, incredibly negative aspects of a human being. Um, and there are incredibly like compelling aspects of the human being. And one thing I, I, I didn't get into this too deeply in the book, but it, this is something else that I do like about reality TV or that something that often warms my heart about it is that there is kind of 
this almost like very nice humanistic aspect to it, where as as you were saying, like these are just regular people. I mean, you know, something like Real Housewives, you know, they're it's it's affluent, but a lot of shows are not like that. A lot of shows you're seeing people of classes that are usually not on TV. They're not given a chance to tell their story. They're not given a chance to get, uh, give their perspective at all. And it's kind of saying like these people, like look, you put a camera in front of them, they matter. They count. We're going to pay attention to them. Um, and you can kind of just like see them very clearly as unique individuals who have a specific story, and that is why the way they are. And like don't don't you know don't forget that they're there. And so you know I. I don't know if I'd go so far as to say that there's like kind of like a real populist potential in this, but it's something like that. Um, it's something it's something at least gesturing at that where what we're saying is like we now have the ability with this narrative art form in reality TV to kind of make something matter just by putting a camera in front of it, maybe editing a little bit. And then like this person, this random person is probably going to have a pretty compelling story because they're a human being who is out there having to live life in this world that we live in right now. Well, that was that was like the big secret that I learned in reality TV production is how much of it is the person. And I do think there really is a populist thing going on because it is the amplification of the common person. When we were doing shows, we would get a plot outline well in advance because they had to get the, the show funded. And then a casting director is really the person who makes the show. Like that's, I mean, Jersey Shore is the perfect example of this. I don't think any casting has really been better than, than that specific show because it's like so, um, it's, it, I almost want to like put that show in like a museum. Like it's just so like, it's, it's absolutely perfect, but that's all in the casting. And so the, they do have to find humans that are not just there's a big difference you could find people and put them on screen but they do change you mentioned this in the book about the gaze and how the camera itself changes the character that has a fuel that could run out whereas if you find a compelling human to put on there and this again excludes the real housewives because like they come from affluent backgrounds that already kind of structured the reality previous to the show but people themselves are like i think there is a, a populist kind of structure of like this is how the common person becomes more attentive when i was in high school reality like tv wasn't was still on just cable like we and i could remember like sitting in like the bleachers and kids were filling out like those forms to get on real world like they they just wanted to be on it and i was like sitting there and be like you you're definitely not gonna be on real world <laughs> and, so, and so there was like this idea like you could know somebody and then go from there so i just one more point i want to bring up is that there's something i watched long ago and it's a reference that made me think of this towards your real housewives chapter when you write this really great quote do women like this really exist out of the camp outside of the camera's gaze and it reminded me of this bit on This American Life that's way back in like 2011. And Chris Ware illustrated this episode that was about a phase or a fad that went on in his classroom where all these kids kind of made paper mache cameras. And for like two weeks, they made everything into a reality show, like a news and reality, just like straight, it changed the structure of how the kids interact with each other. And it was really a metaphor for the gaze, like how the camera itself kind of does that. And you bring up at that point, like how the existence of a person outside of that camera gaze, your analogy there then connects it to like Ivanka Trump's reality that she structured as a performance because of the awareness of the camera. How, how do you see like the next steps of like reality TV? Do you see that? Do you see it scaling or do you see it like we've reached some sort of like plateau? The last several years, we've seen a, a, a little growth, but there wasn't been there hasn't been as big of a growth since like the aughts to the teens, you know? So now like, where do you see like the next, the 
2020s of reality TV? Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, one thing I would uh, I would hope, uh, and that you know that my book would be a small part of this, but you know there there are definitely others doing this sort of thing that it becomes uh, easier to talk about in polite company, or it becomes more interesting to discuss when when you're you know meeting new people and things like that. I talk about how um, particularly with The Bachelor. I mean, every time I strike up a conversation about it, you need to get over this little hump at the beginning where the person doesn't really want to admit they watch it and they kind of downplay their interest. And five or 10 minutes later, we're, you know, deep into it, talking about every little detail. But I I do think that even since I've gotten um, really, really into it and since it's become the dominant thing that I watch, like I don't really watch a lot of fiction television anymore. I think that 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 it has moved in that direction, that that it is taken a bit more seriously and it's given a, a bit more credit for creating entertainment that is emotionally relevant and that that can be socially relevant as well. So, I mean, I would say a lot of these shows, uh, to be honest, you know, I'm just going to sound like a fan here, but like they should keep doing what they're doing. And I I think some of the big Bravo shows like Real Housewives shows that have been on for more than a dozen years now, and even Vanderpump Rules also, like I think they need kind of a a fresh start. I'm willing to bet there's a lot of voices out there looking for more diverse casts, you know, casts that are kind of of this moment and not seven years ago. And this is also something I love about revisiting old shows is like, even if you go back just five years or, you know, forget about it. If you go back to Laguna Beach, it is just incredible how different a feel the social space has and kind of what's acceptable and how people behave. It changes very quickly. So, I mean, I think it's something that, you know, it draws on an inexhaustible resource, which is real life, which are, you know, the, the real people out there, the real characters uh, out there that are kind of waiting to be discovered. I think a lot of shows need a next, a kind of a next generation, but I don't know that it impacts too much kind of the the formal techniques that are employed to create these shows. Um, like I would, I would be surprised if we saw more shows like Laguna Beach or The Hills that are like so highly uh, produced and and simulated. Right now, I, I think that the best stuff is, you know, mainly what Bravo is doing. Um, they, they really strike a nice balance with creating a show with great characters that is like so entertaining and so just fascinating kind of in the, these interpersonal kind of conflicts, but also letting them breathe a little bit and they're always being kind of a chaos factor. And and I mean, and just, uh, just to name what one other that's big is I think the bat the Bachelor is probably the show that's in the worst shape. It has not fared well at all during the pandemic, in my in my opinion. I mean, in a sense, I don't I don't know if you watched it or if it's gonna. I do this in this season. I do, yeah, because it was it's been very interesting. This one, yeah. Did you watch the Claire Taya season? Mm-hmm. I did. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the Claire stuff I found incredibly amazing just because it was such a disaster. And she is such a longstanding uh, member of the show. But The Bachelor, it had been feeling stale to me for a while. And it doesn't feel all that exciting anymore, just in terms of them being able to create kind of credible romantic relationships in parallel. Like people are making both uh, both Matt James and Claire they both made their decisions like way too early. Matt panicked at the end, but he didn't really, it, it wasn't like it used to be where like The Bachelor would really end up like pretty deeply involved with like five different women who were like convinced that they were 
the one, you know, like that's where you get like the real drama. It's been a little bit more drab, uh, but anyway, I'm, I'm uh, digressing a little bit <laughs> into the into the details here. But that that's I think your analysis of the bastard is really good and enlightening to me because I I've actually been keeping up with it only because Twitter keeps up with it, and so it's kind of my way to know what the heck's going on in everything. And I watch it in that way. I kind of watch it passively, but the last few seasons have felt like I don't want to say awkward, but they felt and awkward to me is actually good because it actually feels more real. But in that way, then it doesn't hold up its like its plot or its way of being in this term in this genre game show. In that aspect, I kind of was thinking that there was like I guess to, to build on what you're saying, it is it has exhausted its format, and so now it's kind of like it's in terms of like how it's going to rethink. It almost has to like restructure like as a game show as a, as a concept because otherwise people have now like the way that people used to figure out how to how to win a game now the reality the level of realities are are increased because the, the contestants the talent the people the game the viewers, the producers are now all aware. And once you mm -hmm. become too aware, that's when it becomes like an artifice of its own artifice. And there, I think, is your reality squared of like, we are now watching multiple levels of reality functioning. And they're actually functioning. And it's actually kind of beautiful to watch that many levels of function because it's complicated. But at the same time, it feels different. And I think that to me is like one of the, the most fun aspects of watching some of these shows is actually seeing how to kind of read it. Like what's, what's actually happening, what's going on. So that, that chapter is actually like very pleasing to me too. Cause I was like, well, that's to be honest, I just didn't really think of it as much until I read that chapter. I was like, that's very enlightening. And that's where I think your book, like I, I would, I will be recommending it to as many people as possible because I don't like it's now 25 years into the genre and it's no longer, that would be the equivalent of like in 1975 being like not understanding how I love Lucy works, you know? So it's like it, that's how long it's been a, sh a show. And that's at this point, we have to understand it's a serious endeavor and something to be read. One last uh, question or note is when you're out and like when you're in public or you're having conversations and you're listening to somebody talk about a political moment and someone references reality TV, how do you draw this might be a longer drawn out question, but how do you draw in that that structure of the reality TV into the political conversation? I know this is probably a bigger question, but like, how is it? How do you do that? What's the method of talking about it? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess the as far as this uh, this particular conversation goes, I mean, Donald Trump is always going to be a um, kind of an easy lead in since he he literally was a reality uh, TV star and became president of the United States, which is still even, you know, even after living through four years of the administration, it's still crazy and incredible to say that. But, you know, I, I would say that, like, look at the moment that we're in. I actually had some kind of conflict when I was writing this because I had really just finished the draft as we were getting more toward the end of the, the Democratic primary. And, you know, I was uh, a pretty big Bernie supporter and I was pretty gone with the wind. Like, I, I really thought he had it. And in fact, if a, if a movement like Bernie's was successful and if the hard class first materialists were kind of right, that it really does come down to class politics and stuff like that, then I think that would have been uh, kind of a, a problem for the, the thesis in the book, which challenges a little bit of that um, and tries to say like this is kind of going to be you know, a lot more complicated. It's not going to be that straightforward. Uh, and so I, I was in this weird, weird position. I mean, look what happened. You know, we've ended up with a president who, at least in my opinion, is even more simulacral than, than Donald Trump was. Like, do we... 
do we even have a president? Like, wh- what is even going on there? And then, uh, and then, the, of course, also the pandemic. I'm very uh, kind of open in saying this has been one of the most confusing times of my life, just in terms of being able to kind of figure out information and facts. I mean, it, it truly depends on which precinct of Twitter you uh, happen to be on in terms of what you know about the virus, what you believe about it, about kind of what's effective, about how deadly it is and what how the deaths are being coded. And it's just a complete disorientation. And it, it has left me, you know, it has left me baffled. Um, and, you know, I, I wrote the book in like most of 2019 and some of the years leading up to it were early drafts. And now kind of when it's being published, you have pieces in the New York Times talking about establishing truth commissions and we need to appoint a reality czar. And of course, QAnon and, conspiracy, and conspiracies are bigger than they've kind of ever been. And they've become almost like the dominant dominant form of popular mobilizing discourse that America has. So the problem has gotten worse. Uh, you know, what's good is that that also makes the problem a lot more interesting, I, I think, because if, you know, like you, like in your kind of your academic career and me in putting this book together, we've spent a good amount of time thinking about this stuff and can now maybe hopefully put our money where our mouth is, but that dep- that <laughs> remains to be seen. I am so glad I asked that question. Thank you. That is perfect. You're absolutely right. It's been tough and it's been so difficult because in our experience of trying to organize our own personal aspects inside the chaos with no real guidance whatsoever, it is a structure that we're going to have to, we don't yet know. And that, that also may play into reality TV itself. We're not sure the repercussions as we delve into the next few years of like how this actually decompresses. What does this look like when we actually start talking about it in ways we are really reflective on it? And that's something as disorienting as this is, is somewhat, I have a, I have a high interest in what, what's going to happen next and, a, and a optimism that we're going to, especially with knowing that your book is coming out and conversations like this happen, that we're going to be talking about it much more seriously. So again, thank you. So how can people find you and where could they uh, interact with you? Uh, so probably the, the main spot would be Twitter. Um, I'm at Cyvology on Twitter, S-Y-V-O-L-O-G-Y. And you can can look up the book, uh, Reality Squared, um, that's coming out from Zero Books on April 1st. And I write for Splice Today. I have have some of older articles on uh, Pace Magazine, uh, if you want to check that stuff out. Some of the groundwork uh, <laughs> was laid there. Uh, but, but yeah, just you know, get at me on Twitter. Awesome. Thank you again for being here. Thank you so much. Thank you again to Tom for joining us on the Digital Void podcast. Reality Squared on reality TV and left politics is available everywhere on April 1st. To learn more about Digital Void and to find show notes of today's episode and all previous conversations, you can visit us on the web at digitalvoid.media. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll be back next week.